And so they are still involved in our lives. And this is a formal invite to Doug and Sheena. <laughs> Come. <laughs> You'll murder me, but <laughs> I mean, we can recapture that. We'll get Corin Raynor. She was Corin Raynor then. We'll get her to come too. But anyway, isn't that beautiful? That that's over 30 years ago, and we are still loving Jesus together and serving and in another con context, continent, but just God has been so, so good. You know, this morning I saw something and I wanted to just share it. Um, I saw a wonderful dad walk his little son across the front here during worship. And as he was walking, he had his hand on the back of his little son's head. And he was just guarding him like this the whole time. His hand was just on the back of his head and took him across. And he navigated through flags and kids and all sorts of things. But he, he just kept his hand on his little son's head and took him across the front. And I, I just thought, oh, God, that is such a picture of you as a good, good father with your hand upon our heads guarding us in our lives. And I thought of the scripture, the everlasting love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And when Stan got up and spoke, I just thought that, that everlasting love is a attachment love. It, it's, it's, it's a love that is his, your father. He is your father. The problem is we have a wrong concept of who, what a good father is. But he is the perfect good father. And he lovingly puts his hand on your head and wants to guide you, wants to lead you, wants to show you the way. So I just want to echo what Stan said. I just really do also feel some of you don't want to respond to God because you don't really know who he is. But his everlasting love never ceases. It never comes to an end. His mercies on you. That's the God that we're inviting you to know. Thank you. It was December 1976 at uh, Marshalls, which was a, a semi-industrial area just down the road, when I said yes to Jesus. And... Um, just standing in the worship this morning, enjoying it enormously, distracted in the best possible way by watching all of you worship. I was reminded of the things that really matter. David Brooks, the New York Times columnist, has got a great book out on character in which he talks about the resume virtues and the um, obituary virtues. And you know, folks, the things that really matter is our love for Jesus. And I can say honestly, 45 years later, I love him more than I ever have before. I just do not know how people get bored with him. Honestly, I'm not being facetious or hard or tough. I love, love, love his bride. Please don't tell me you love me but hate my girls. Well, you know, Chris, your, your daughter really hurt me. I, I, if you're around me for a moment or a message, you will know how much I love Nassia Lara, was Venant, is now tapping. That little girl that was on the picture who was about two years old, 
She's now a gorgeous 36-year-old, planted a church, has four children, and then went off to nursing school and got a degree in nursing at the University of Notre Dame, Australia. Please don't tell me you love me, but you don't love my daughter. They are incompatible. Dana, who was born in that picture, April 1980. I love that girl. She's married to Stu. They have given us two amazing little kiddos. She's on staff with me, pretty much runs the church, if truth be told. Please don't tell me you love me, but you don't love Dana. Because I'm probably not that interested. Please don't tell Jesus that you love him, it's just his bride you don't like. I don't think it's humanly possible. I think you live in deception. If you think you can love Jesus, but not his bride. And I absolutely love his call to a broken world. Just flown in from LAX, thousands of people going through LAX, Dubai, thousands of people. We had a 14-hour layover. We stayed with uh, Linda Hutton, our dear friends there, but we went to the Dubai Mall first because Tian, our son who's traveling with us, who is still sleeping, I hope, um, had never seen the Burj Khalifa and so on. And just the thousands and thousands and thousands of people who have finding comfort and affection in materialism. How can our hearts not go out for such a shallow life? Please don't tell me you love Jesus, but you don't love his bride. Please don't tell me you love Jesus and his bride. It's just his creation you don't like. It's not humanly possible. It's such an honor for Meryl and I to be here. We love Jesus with all of our hearts to the best that we can. I love his church. I want you to know that. I'm not a professional pastor. I've never studied a formal day to be in ministry. But that Jesus that captured an 18-year-old's heart, a young Afrikaans boy who was broken by the first 18 years of his life just down the road here, I love him. A friend asked me the other day, he said to me, Chris, if you didn't do what you're doing now, what would you do? And I looked at him and honestly said, I would do this. Love Jesus. Love his bride. Love his kids. And love his creation. Now that does not demean or diminish any one of you that is involved in marketplace, education, medicine, of course it doesn't, because you're expressing it in that space. I want you to grab your Bibles with me to go to a little tightly squeezed prophet called Habakkuk, or Habakkuk. It's one of 12 what theologians call the minor prophets. And like you, I was trying to make sense of it all, of it all, and um, began this year by just digging into this particular little three-chaptered book. And I hope this morning, and, 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 and it took me many weeks to exegete the passage, but I hope this morning I'll be able to just walk you through some of the key moments 
to make sense of it all. Our hearts, watching you from a distance, have been deeply moved and pained by your COVID experience. Traumatized by the riots that you experienced and many people not only losing their lives, but their income and their businesses and their properties. And then as if KZN had not had enough, the floods. I just sat on my YouTube and just looked at video after video and my heart was broken for you. How do you make sense of all of this? Well, let's have a look and see if this little book can help us in any way. The prophecy that Habakkuk the prophet received. How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you violence, but you do not save? Why do you, take me, why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. Let's stop there for just a moment. This is a compelling little book that one theologian said took 20 years to write. Don't get discouraged that God is writing your story over decades. In an Instagram fast food world, we so want God to let every microcosm be a, the narrative of our story. But what this three-chapter book does, written over a 20-year period, is it accounts for a man and his wrestle with God. It's the only prophet whose business is solely with God. He does not speak prophetically from God to man. He exclusively wrestles with God about man and about God himself. It's a most compelling little book. And it starts off with us giving, being given an idea of this poem of praise. I want to encourage you to change your language a little bit. This is a poem of praise, three chapters that start almost like a symphony. Slowly, it's dreary, it is it's depressive, the mood, the stage is overcast by mists. Nothing makes sense, nothing is visible, nothing is evident, nothing is clarified. But as the poem of praise begins to unfold itself, like Vivaldi's Four Seasons, you feel the slow but intentional increase of rhythm and beauty and wonder and splendor culminating it all right at the very end with sovereign lord is my strength he enables my feet like the deer like the feet of a deer he enables me to tread on the heights the great climax of the book where habakkuk comes to understand what this is all about the word prophecy there is an interesting word, and it's a word that actually doesn't give us the true grasp of the text. The word prophecy there is the Hebrew word masa. And if you've heard me preach much at all, you would have heard me come to this word. Because the word masa has two primary ideas to it. The one is a burden or a weight. I remember in uh, August 1996, we landed in L.A., and this, we landed on the Tuesday, Friday, there was an elders meeting in which the church was given to us. Sunday night was the official celebration. And I remember going home with a migraine or a migraine. 
And I remember thinking, I'm not a migraine kind of guy, but there was something that came on me that night. And for 14 years, I carried the burden or the weight of a masa. But the word masa is also uplifting. It's what lifts me up. And we live in that oxymoronic position of feeling way down by the word the Lord has spoken to us. Oh God, if it's possible, take this away from me. Even Jesus said that. And every one of us in our masa moments will feel this is too big for me. It's too hard, as the Aussies would say. I cannot cope with it. And hopefully I'll bring some clarity to that in just a moment. But then as we step into that grace space, we are lifted up and we realize I can't do anything else. This is why I am on this planet. I'm carried down by a load that's too great to bear and I'm being lifted up beyond my, my wildest imaginations to live a life far more compelling than I ever dreamed possible. Every day of my life, dear friends, I was born in Thunderbell Park. My father was a boiler maker. My opa worked on Esco for 30-something years, never missed a day. That was my blue collar heritage. We knew how to work. But then God seeded something inside of me. And I remember Meryl and I on our 30th wedding anniversary sitting next to Notre Dame in Paris. The sun was setting. I got her a glass of wine and she doesn't even drink, but it seemed like that was the right thing to do. I got a French beer and someone out of nowhere pulled out a violin and started playing and the people just emerged onto the tarmac and they danced and I wept. I am an Afrikaans kid from Thunderbell Park who said yes to Jesus. The masa is a burden that weighs me down. The masa is the grace that lifts me up and I will forever live in that position, that place of holy tension. But Habakkuk itself means to cling. And I think this is a book, dear friends, that calls us to cling to Jesus. Especially in brutal times of chaos and confusion when we cannot make sense of it all. It's an invitation to cling or to hold to or embrace Him whom our soul loves. That little Hebrew mama who called her boy, He who clings to, come to mama. And he heard His name repeatedly, He who clings to, come. And when I read this book, I hear the echoes of my Heavenly Father inviting me to cling to Him even though the circumstances make no sense whatsoever. But the third thing that's compelling even from these early verses, dear friends, is it's a prayer of lament. Now most of us do not know how to lament. Partly because we South Africans and we know how to survive. Partly, secondly, because we come from a charismatic culture where we glibly and lightly Throw out phrases like, we're the head and not the tail. We're on top and not beneath. Do not doubt. Do not be anxious. The only problem is those are true and they are in the text, but there are also many other texts. 
And this is one of those cold, sober moments where God gives the prophet permission to lament, to grieve, if you wish. In the charismatic world, dear friends, we've always got to be bouncy. We've always got to be up. We've always got to be into it. But the tenderness with which the prophet laments has to grab our attention. It has to be the sovereign God who allows us to enlarge our prayer ecology. Our prayer landscape is way too... I remember remember the prayer meetings at the old DLI where we prayed for an hour and oftentimes in tongues nonstop. The veins stuck out of our necks, out of our foreheads. We sundied up and down, got sweaty, and we'd leave there. That was a great prayer meeting. Why was it great? It was great because we prayed loudly till we got hoarse. It was, it was great because there were another hundred other people just like us, crazily shouting out all sorts of beautiful things. But nowhere in our prayer ecology was there the validation of men and women who are lamenting because things aren't turning out quite the way we think they should. And so we're dishonest with God, and we're dishonest with ourselves, and we're dishonest with each other. How are you good? No, I'm actually not good. I've got a heart condition. I'm not good. So must I lie to you? Because my charismatic roots demand it? Must I just say, well, yeah, good. God is good. Hallelujah. Or can I actually say, this thing sucks. I'm 63 with a heart condition. That sucks. Is there permission to do that? Is there room to be honest and vulnerable with ourselves and with each other? Isn't it interesting that God does not rebuke Habakkuk for lamenting? Where's your faith, brother? I'm not going to answer your prayer. Look at you. You suck. He answers him differently, as we'll get to in just a moment. But the pain of Habakkuk's heart is overwhelming. Violence, injustice, wrongdoing, destruction, violence and more, strife, conflict, the law is paralyzed, the justice never prevails, and the wicked hem in the righteous. He has got much to lament about. South Africans, you have much to lament about. And is there a sector of your prayer culture that allows for grieving? This is not the way it was meant to look. We, told, we were told that if we prayed and fasted enough, Mandela would be released and the new South African would be born and it would be amazing. It's not. So can we lament without it being a political agenda? Can we grieve for the loss of things we thought we had? Isn't there a reason why all of this took 20 years? What is God's response? Verse 5. You with me still? Look at the nations and watch. Be utterly amazed because I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if I... Hang on a second. Hang on. Time out. You are not answering my question. I have got my family to feed. 
I have got my house mortgage to pay. I've got my business that's teetering. I'm the Helen with my church. My elders don't care whether I exist or not. That's my lament. And you are saying, what? God says to Habakkuk, look to the nations. Ladies and gentlemen, we have meaning and purpose by our contextualizing around a global gospel narrative. Take that global piece out and Christianity becomes decidedly bland, boring, and repetitive. It was always meant to be an adventure. We have a beautiful little community. Honestly, she is gorgeous. It's like a child in our old age. The age demographic is 20 to 32. Don't ask me how for the longest time we were the only people in the church that had a house. But I said to them, I don't know why you're coming to a grandpa and a grandma, but this is what I promise you. We will preach the gospel and live a global story that will invite you to adventure. Now, in that age demographic, this summer, almost half of them are traveling internationally. They are students who have no money. They are newly married who have no money. They have got their first child. They have no money. And one after, and they want to fundraise because, hey, it's America. And I said, no fundraising. This is a story of faith. And almost 50 of them are traveling this summer. Some to Porto, Portugal, where we're doing an emerging leaders event. And some here to Live Valley Village who are serving a hundred of the orphans uh, for a week. Bringing, they were asked to bring a, an American summer camp. Whatever that may mean. And I watched one after the other of them get so excited. I watched their worship shift because now they had to trust God for money they did not have. Because Christianity at its root makes most sense when I live a life of adventure. Take adventure from me and I have a bored, bland, repetitive experience that is not compelling. I am a Liverpool soccer supporter. Yes, sir. And I am very happy that they won yesterday. But you know, I found the game incredibly exciting. But if I saw that game next week, it'd probably be a little less exciting because I know what's going to happen. If I saw it the third week in the same way, I probably would be a little less excited. I think by the fourth, fifth, or sixth week, I probably will be standing at the braai, making the braai, having my non-alcoholic beer. Because this was never meant to be but a global gospel adventure. And it's not age-specific. It's not wealth-specific. It's not demographic-specific. It's obedience to the call of God to live a life beyond ourselves. You know, the, uh, Charles Taylor, the Canadian philosopher, says that our world today is driven by expressive individualism. Ask nothing of me because I will only live the life I choose to live. The misauthenticity of the millennials 
just be true to yourself, whatever that may mean. What has it done? It's created a world in which depressive medication, and please, I'm very sensitive to those of you who have meds. I wasn't necessarily the most empathetic, and so I think God tweaked my heart a little bit, so I'm on tablets every day. I check my heart pulse several times every day. So I feel the empathy of those of you who are vulnerable and who are taking medication. But why is it that in an age of incredible freedom and social media, there is this demise into depression? It's because we've lost the privilege of giving ourselves away. That, dear friends, look at the nations. Don't be so myopically preoccupied with your situation and your story and your marriage and your home and your car and your finances. Lift your head. God says, look at the nations. Look at what I'm doing in Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Pakistan, Afghanistan. You know what's happening? We've got a couple in our church whose parents are there in their 70s. They said they will not retire. They will die on the mission field. And the Taliban were out to get them. They had to move at 2 o'clock in the morning, house to house within Kabul. But they stayed. And they got as many of their people out as possible. I'm online. I'm recorded, so I can't mention their names. Having done all, the Bible said, stand. The Taliban have come to them and said, we see the school you're running Will you start a school like that in every province in Afghanistan? Who are they? They are two, they are two 70-year-olds who said they will look at the nations. Not preoccupy their lives in the soft myopia of expressive individualism. It's all about me. My happiness. It's an illusion. Look at the nations. Be utterly amazed. For I'm doing, I'm going, I'm do, going to do a new thing in your days that you will not believe. Okay, I need to gallop. Is there time for just one more little section here? Thank you. <laughs> For those of you who didn't answer, it is a so so so. There's this travail grief thing that's going on in the first chapter, but the second chapter or the latter part of the first one into the second doesn't really help. Verse twelve: Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, you will never die. You, Lord, are appointing them to execute judgment. You, my Rock, have ordained them to punish. My, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Let me quickly explain what's going on here. And, and forgive my passion. You know, I, I remember Leon von Dahl, who was kind of my pastor mentor when I was a young 24, 25-year-old church planter. And he used to say to me in that beautiful Dutch-Belgium accent of his, we are a tug running a rescue op op operation. He said, that's what we are. This, and he gets all vivid and dramatic. 
And he talks about the storms and the ocean that's battering everything. And here is this tug fighting its way through every ounce of oceanic resistance. Up the wave, down the other side, waves bashing it. And he said, we're on deck. He gets all eloquent. And the, and the sweat on our brow is matched with the saltiness of the ocean in our faces. And in the distance we hear the cry, the pinging cry of a boat that's going down. And against all odds, and against our own comfort, and against our own inconvenience, we push ahead because there is someone that needs to be saved and it's worth living for them. And that's why I'm passionate, dear friends. That's why we fight against the cultural idols that hold us captive in order to live a life that is worthy of it all. You are worthy of it all. For from you are all things, and through you are all things. You deserve the glory. He is worth it all. I'm going to say two things about this passage, and I do apologize. It deserves way more than I can offer. Not only is Habakkuk wrestling with travail, lament, grief, but he's now wrestling with God and his disappointment of him. Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, you will never die. And can I say this with all fatherly tenderness? Each one of us have taken a collage of verses and messages we liked and we put together a wrapping of our theology. Meaning this is what I believe because I really enjoyed hearing that scripture and then I really loved it when Stan, well actually when Heather spoke on this and um, you know I, I put together this collage and that's what I believe I think. And the only problem is that the God we create is never the God of the ages. He's not limited by our intellectual abilities, our arguments, our opinions and perceptions. He is the God of the ages who created this whole universe by a word He spoke. And so, dear friends, what is guaranteed for you and for me is that we will be deeply disappointed by Him. Because He will not be held captive to the God of our authorship. And so every one of us lives in this latter part of chapter 1. God, God, aren't you like this? Isn't this what you are like? Isn't this what, what, what I, yeah, I've got a verse for it. The true humility that comes with our theology is that it's forever growing and God wants to reveal more about himself than I've known up until this point in time. Folks, there is a judgment. Oh, no, no, God's too nice. Everyone's going to get saved at the end. I really hope you're right, but the Bible tells me you are wrong. There will be a judgment, and there will be a separating of sheep and goats. We don't do ourselves a service to create a theological collage that we're happy with. Not only does Habakkuk have to deal with his own travail and grief, he has to deal with his own sense of disappointment and despair. God, how 
Are you not the God I've created? Can I just pause for a moment? I haven't used many illustrations tonight, but this morning, feels tonight. But, but isn't it interesting? When last, because it happens to all of us, has God disappointed you? And have you wondered why? Is it possible that you created a God who doesn't exist? And now you're so disappointed that this God you didn't create, I mean that you created that doesn't exist, didn't do what you wanted Him to do because you created Him to be that way, Pinocchio. It takes an incredible amount of theological humility to get on our knees before the Almighty God and say, God, I'm so sorry. The God that I've created is way too small. This was a 20-year story. I'm a historian. I'm busy reading a book that just does a sweep of history. Oh, the great narrative of God through it all. And you and I are part of it all. With a tender heart, I ask you, how are you coping with God's disappointment? No, Chris, I heard, I heard Brother Hagen say that we're the head and not the tail. I heard that say we will all prosper, and if we just sow some seed, God will give us a harvest back. No, some of you will die. Some of you will die poor. Jesus said it, the poor you'll always have with you. The apostles died poor. Very tender conversation with a young man who visited our church for the first and only time, I suspect. And I took him out for coffee the next week, and he, he said, Chris, you, you said something about healing. What is your position? So I said, well, you know, in the book of Mark, you'll see that God healed one. When he, when he went, is it the pool of Bethesda? He went past all these sick people, and he healed one. And that one wasn't healed because he had faith. He just was healed because he was healed. So, so Jesus did not heal everyone who was there. Could he have? I guess. Did he? Oh, absolutely not. And then the Bible says he healed some, which means others weren't healed in the book of Mark. Then he healed many. Then he healed everyone. And I don't know which of those are evident when we pray for the sick. No, no, you can't say that, he said. He said, in fact, if I pray for someone and they're not healed, it's my fault. I don't have enough faith. I said, young man, can you take me to the Scriptures and just show me that? Because if what you say is true, then all of us have to develop our faith muscle just a tad. Well, of course, he couldn't say it. He couldn't take me anywhere. He created a God that was going to majorly disappoint him. Ladies and gentlemen, God does not heal everyone this side of eternity. If He did, none of us would die. And I guess we're all going to die. Some will die of cancer. Some will die of a broken heart. Some will die of a, a frailing physicality. We will all die. God does not heal everyone all the time. Thank you for your encouragement. It's just theologically unsound. (laughs) 
I so desperately want them to be right. I find no joy in pointing out theological and philosophical inconsistencies. There's no joy in that. I want to believe what he believes. I just can't create a God in my image. I've got to create a God that the Scripture introduces me to. Even what the Scripture has is not always, is your God, is that Him? Is that it? Or is that the key to the door of it? Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Who's that referring to? Exactly. Thank you. It's the Father. And what is he talking about here? Habakkuk is prophesying about that great moment on the cross when the Father turned his back on his Son. And his son experienced everything that Habakkuk experienced. He lamented in the garden, Oh God, if it's possible, let your cup pass from me. Then he hung on the cross and he felt the most dastardly and most weighty of circumstances when God turned his back on him. When three o'clock hour came and darkness covered the earth, it was not a big black cumulus nimbus cloud. It was the Father who separated Himself from His Son because your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. The Gospels in Habakkuk it's tucked right in there. Amidst all of the despair and disappointment, lament and grief, comes the gospel. Colossians chapter 2 reads, When you were dead in your sins, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He did eight things. He forgave us our sins. Let me pause there for just a moment. Let's go back to Calvary. Use your imagination with me, if you will. Jesus is on the cross. He's got thieves either side of him. The sheer brutality of that torture makes anything look that we have today and torture I cannot agree with. It makes it look insipid. Waterboarding is insipid in comparison to dying on a cross. Intentionally designed for a slow, brutal death to discourage any rebellion. Remember Spartacus and his, and his um, endeavor to uh, relieve the slaves? There were 600 of them that, was, that were put on stakes, crucified. On the, I think it was the Appalachian Road. It was a most brutal of deaths. And such was the depth of the cross, dear friends, that God had to fully satisfy Himself that our sins were paid for. And so He turned His back on His Son because He cannot... Look on evil and wrongdoing. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I don't know what it takes a dad to turn his back on his boy. I don't think I ever have. So it goes against everything inside of a father to turn his back on his son in his hour of greatest brutal torture. The cross is not a flippant moment 
of curious religious living. He forgave us all our sins. Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness which stood against us, his father turned his back on his son so that he can forgive us, so that he can cancel the charge against us, so that he can take it all away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and the authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Here in this tiny little book, written over a 20-year period, written as if it were a symphony, building towards a crescendo, is Jesus. And that reminder that God will turn His back on sin, dear friends, Jesus takes the sin away from us. I don't know where you stand today. Mother's Day, I am coming into land. Sorry we've done so little of Habakkuk. Mother's Day, I decided to do something different. I called two first-time moms. Olivia's beautiful. She graduated with Tian in May last year, got married, wanted to have a baby, and she is just mama, 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 loving every moment of it. But there was also Kelsey. Kelsey's gorgeous. She's like a hippie. She never wears shoes. Her hair is always long. I feel like time stood still. I want to say, Kelsey, Kelsey I saw you in the 60s and 70s. I know you. Well, Kelsey, in a moment of madness, slept with a guy, and she became pregnant. With tears streaming down her face, it was her first public confession. She had shared with friends, we knew the story, but she sat there with tears streaming down her face, and she had to say, I had to wrestle with, should I abort this child? And then... How would I cope as a single mom? It was a most exquisite moment as tears streamed down her cheeks. She said, I'm a rebel. She said, if people say go this way, then I go that way. And the only difficulty, the only problem, she said, is that I've lived completely outside of the pattern of God's created order, and I know where it leads. And I've lived fully in the presence of God's defined, designed order, and I know what that is. And with tears streaming down her face, she pleaded, do not flirt with the boundary lines, that or that. I've never seen a story, well, not for a while, that has had such an incredible impact on a room full of young 20-somethings for whom curiosity with still sin is still blossoming. What will it be like? My dear friends, there's such power on the cross because the father turned his back on his boy. Habakkuk saw it. He prophesied it. And Jesus lived it. Why? So that your sins and mine can be fully forgiven. I mean, I mean, does all mean all? Or does all mean some? Or does all mean most? 
or does all mean all? It's so nice to say that here. In America, I can't say all. They say, what? They say, all. Oh. <laughs> Rich Ginger, is that close? All. Oh. Is that close enough? Okay. What about you? I've said a lot. I'm a passionate guy. What about you? Are you Kelsey's story? That have lived passionately outside of, and now you're wanting to live passionately inside of. Are you the Habakkuk in the story because you've cried out to God and you've been deeply disappointed by the theology you created that God has no obligation to fulfill? It's a wonderful moment to realign ourselves. Habakkuk goes on to talk about the just shall live by faith. Six words that change the world. But it starts in a posture of sweet surrender. Would you open your hands on your laps? And I want to pray for us, please. I can only imagine, Heavenly Father, what joy was brought to your heart to watch these little kids in an ambience of freedom that they can run around, eat their food, push their buddy, and sing their song because worship is an adventure moment. I thank you, Jesus, that you came and picked us up from the boring mundaneness of our lives and invited us into a global adventure. But somewhere along the line, we lost that picture as we became absorbed with expressive individualism. It's just me, just my family, just my mortgage. How tragic. I ask right now, Lord, that you would lift our heads to look at the nations and you would get us to lift our head towards the cross. And that will your heavenly Father turned his back on you so that he will not turn his back on me as you forgive me of all my sins. That is my anchor. That is my foundation. That is my message. There is no other. In Jesus' name.